Hey everybody, it's so good to be able to join you and get into God's Word with you, even if it's in this digital form today. Today we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from the book of Exodus for just this week, and then we'll come back and we will finish the sermon series in the coming weeks ahead. And I don't know about you, but I have really been enjoying getting into Exodus and following all of the context and cultural background and kind of digging in for those nuggets of truth that are built into the story of God's people at that point in salvation history. But today, let me invite you to open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we're going to turn to the New Testament, maybe get a little bit of a breath of fresh air before we go back to Exodus. And we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses today of Mark chapter 7. Go ahead and open to that in a pew Bible, or maybe you have that on your device there. But I'm going to read this for us. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, as we look upon your word this morning, please teach us. Lord, we desire to see what you want us to see, and we want to be led to where you want us to be. Please stir our hearts this morning around your gospel. Give us ears to hear your words that we might respond in obedience and be led to worship. We pray all of this in Christ's name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Now today we find ourselves here in the book of Mark, which is presumably the first gospel account that was written recording Jesus' life and work. And if you were to start at the beginning, one of the things that you would definitely see is this clear tension that exists between Jesus and the religious authorities that are around him. Some of us might know these as the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes. And part of the reason that Jesus and the religious leaders don't get along is because he holds them to a life of of true godly devotion. To put it another way, when they profess one thing over here and then they do something else, on the other hand, they show themselves to have some sort of incongruency, Jesus says that that is not the abundant life that God has for his people. So the result is that there is some clashing between them where they try and discredit Jesus and destroy his ministry. They view him as a a threat to, to what they are trying to do and a traitor to their faith. And so throughout Mark, there's these moments 
where the religious leaders kind of pop up in the story. It's kind of this whack-a-mole thing where they, they pop up and Jesus has to defeat them once again. And they try and kind of throw proverbial stones at Jesus and trap him in his words all the way to the end of the book where they seek to take Christ's life. Now today specifically, they're going to come on the scene again right after a point in the story where Jesus was in the marketplaces. And what he was doing there, he was healing a bunch of people. And we also saw that he had walked on the water, kind of this miraculous moment that some of us might be familiar with. And what we'll see today is that Jesus is confronting this firm grasp that the religious leaders have on their traditions. Now, before we move on, I just want to say this as a note here, is that we are all a very traditional people. We are all a very traditional people. Now, depending on who you are, you might agree with me, but some of you might say, no, Matt, that, that doesn't characterize me. I don't view myself as being very traditional, but I think some of that comes down to how we would define tradition. Maybe when you think of tradition, you think of something that's old or antiquated. Maybe when you think of tradition, you think it's something that tends to control people or leaves them stuck in this religious rut or leaves them stuck in the past. Maybe some of you are sitting there and you actually get your kicks on kind of deconstructing tradition and, and kind of circumventing that. But either way, depending on how you would define it, I think that we can all fit into the category of traditional if we use the right definition. So here's my definition for us, and it'll come up right here on the bottom of the screen. Tradition can be defined as an agreed upon, rehearsed belief, or a repeated ritual. Let me say that again. Tradition is an agreed upon, rehearsed belief, or a repeated ritual. And under this definition, I would venture to say that we are all steeped in tradition. The only difference is some of us recognize it while others of us might not. So for me personally, uh, I grew up in, in a Jewish context. Many of you know this about me. And while we were certainly not orthodox, there were certain things about my upbringing that were marked by traditional Jewish expression. So when I was 13, I was bar mitzvahed as I became a man in the Jewish community. Every year, me and my family would attend uh, the High Holy Days. Some of you might be familiar with Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, and we would fast and, and, and pray for hours on end. My sister and I, uh, we attended Hebrew school. So, so Jewish boys and girls, they don't obviously go to church on Sunday. So what do they do? They go to Hebrew school and we would go there and we would learn Hebrew and we would talk about our faith and kind of parse out some of that. But for the sake of all of you Gentiles, maybe I can give us uh, some more general uh, traditional expressions that we have built into our day-to-day -day lives. So one example of this is, is many of us brushed our teeth this morning before we came to church. At least I hope many of us did. But when we think about that, like who says that we need to do that? Like taking this mint flavored goop and, and putting it on plastic bristles and rubbing them on our teeth. Like for some reason, we've decided that this is a good idea and that is a tradition. For some of us that have uh, grass in our yard, mowing our lawn is another example of a tradition. For some reason, the foliage being trimmed to a certain length around our property fits into a, a cultural expectation that we have for ourselves and that we have for many of those around us. How about this one? For those of us uh, who are, are married, how many of us in the room actually saw the face of our spouse before we married them? 
I would venture to say that that would be many of us, but that is not the case in some other parts of the world that we would deem to be maybe a little bit overly traditional, right? There are situations where there are arranged marriages where people don't actually see their spouse until the wedding day, and that is not the case where many of us are from. I would even go so far as to say that, that for those of us who maybe pride ourselves on not being traditional, that way of thinking can also become a tradition. I mean, by definition, that is a, a repeated rehearsed belief that shapes the way that you go about your life. So the point is, is we all have traditions, whether we recognize them or not. And as Jesus enters into this confrontation in the text today, he's also going to, in some sense, confront our traditions as well. And that is good, and that is right, and that is healthy for our walk with him. So let, let's look at this in some parts. We're going to break down the text into three parts. And the first one is this. We find ourselves in a familiar situation. This is verses one through four. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who come from Jerusalem, they come around Jesus and they, and, and they saw that some of his disciples are eating food with hands that are defiled that is unwashed. And then there's a clarification in the text. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Okay, so we've already talked about some of the building tensions that exist around the religious leaders and Jesus, but it's easy for us to throw stones at the religious leaders without taking the time to get into what they're thinking. But I think this is good for us to do in this situation. So let's take the moment to, to get ourselves into their mind. So they've observed that Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands because they've just come from the marketplace, right? Where ordinarily a Jewish person would do that if they held to a, a kind of traditional expression of following God. And, and what we see is that in the marketplace, there were Gentiles or non-Jews. And, and therefore, the Jews would say, okay, we're going to wash our hands when we get back. And you might say, okay, why are they washing their hands? So this might require a little bit of explanation. So let's take a second to clarify there. Now, the Jewish people, they, they have the law of Moses that's given to them in the, the Old Testament. And for those of us who have been tracking through the Exodus sermon series, we get some, uh, some time to dig into that law in a little bit of detail. But part of what the law does in the Old Testament is it limits certain interactions that God's people Israel are to have with certain people and with certain animals. Some of these animals are labeled as clean and unclean. And, and this is not because they are dirty, but it's because some of these animals are associated with being scavengers, meaning they associate themselves with dead things. So the Israelite was not to eat an animal that it was associated with death, a scavenger, and then go waltzing into the presence of God, the giver of life. That would be inappropriate. That would be slightly oxymoronic. Like that wouldn't make sense. So when the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples coming from the marketplace where there's probably unclean foods or at the very least people who are associating themselves with unclean foods and then they don't ritually wash their hands and purify themselves before they eat, the religious leaders see this as a lack of piety. They see this as them defiling themselves as a follower of the God of Israel and they use this as a moment to try and discredit Jesus. 
But note with me that that is not how Jesus views the marketplaces. In fact, it's actually the opposite where Jesus goes into the marketplaces and he is the one making unclean things clean again. It's this beautiful moment where we see the kingdom of God breaking into the world in a way that the religious leaders did not expect. Now, as a side note, notice with me that that as we look at verse 3, there seems to be a clarification. If you look in the NIV or some of the other modern translations, you'll see that there's a a parenthesis that starts in verse 3 and then ends in verse 4. It's this parenthetical aside. You might wonder why that's there. That's there because the way the text reads in context, it seems fairly clear that this is a clarification for those that aren't Jewish about what traditional Jewish expression looked like. And this leads scholars to believe that Mark was probably written predominantly to those who are not Jewish. Now, this gospel certainly has some intention to be read to all of God's people as kind of an evangelistic tool to remind them of what Jesus has done to record his life and work for his people. But specifically, if we're talking about the intended audience, it seems like Mark is written to Gentiles. Now, you might say, Matt, why is that important? And here's why this is very practical for us now. Because even though this text is talking a lot about traditional Jewish culture, Mark intends Gentiles, his predominant audience, to read this and reflect on what Jesus is addressing here. So I want to encourage you as you read this, not to write this off or kind of mentally check out saying, okay, this is predominantly about Jewish people and Jewish culture, and it doesn't have relevance for me because clearly Mark intends Gentiles to be reading this and reflecting upon their own traditional Jewish expressions and how Jesus might be interacting or confronting them as well. So just Come back with me now for a moment to think about what this moment must have been like. The religious leaders, they didn't see Jesus and his disciples doing something. Now, consider with me how much they must have been watching him, not just to see what he was doing, but what he wasn't doing, right? They, they noticed that Jesus' followers were not washing their hands. They were waiting for this moment for them to trip up. When I was preparing this text, a friend of mine pointed out just how in-depth your observations of a person must be, how infatuated you must be with that person to try and catch them, not just doing something, but not doing something. They are slightly obsessed with trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong. And so they ask him then in verse five, what I call an underhanded question, an underhanded question. Verse five, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they ask Jesus this, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with with defiled hands? So this is how they decide to challenge Jesus. They ask him why he's not following the tradition of the elders, which is kind of a shorthand way of saying their oral traditions. If you're from a modern Jewish context, uh, you might understand this as the oral law. So we already know that that the religious leaders have a high value for the Old Testament law, but they took it a step further. And what they did is they built this fortress around the law of Moses in fear of violating it in the first place. They didn't want to be sent into exile again, so they built rules around the rules to make sure they didn't break the original rules, the original law. But the problem that they ran into with Jesus is that he claimed that this type of hyper-literal obedience was not sufficient 
to please God. And it was not enough to restore their relationship with him and cause them to be a person who was reconciled in their relationships to their neighbors. Jesus was claiming that God was doing something else, not different than what was written in the Old Testament, but different than the traditional expressions and rules that the Pharisees had gained and built and expected of people. And Jesus claimed that he was integral to this part of the plan that God was doing, this, this way that God's kingdom was coming into the world. So they say, why aren't your disciples following the traditions of the elders? So they're asking a question. But many of us know that when we say something, that's not always what we mean. Sometimes we mean something different than what actually comes out of our mouth. And that's exactly what is going on here. Let me give an example of that. Let's say you're sitting to eat dinner with somebody and they stop eating and they still have food on their plate that you want. What do we say to them sometimes? Sometimes we say, are you going to eat that, right? But that's not really what we mean. We, we, we don't mean, you know, are you actually going to, to ingest that food? What we mean is, I would like your food. Can you please give it to me if you're not going to have it? So we mean something often different than what we're saying. So the Pharisees appear to be asking about the disciples and their hand washing rituals, but that's not actually what's going on. What's actually going on is they're questioning Jesus, the teacher of the disciples, and why he does not have a, a value for falling in line with their agreed upon traditions regarding ritual purity. And Jesus' response is very significant for us here. This is what he says, and this is the rest of the text. Look at verses 6 through 13. Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that. Okay, so Jesus begins by quoting Isaiah. The text is specifically Isaiah 29, 13. You can see that right at the bottom of the screen here, what that text is. And the context of Isaiah 29 here is that Israel's leaders, hundreds of years before the incarnation of Jesus, were also engaged in being wrapped up in the wrong thing. They were wrapped up in rules instead of what true worship to Yahweh looked like. And Jesus takes this opportunity to take that context and overlay it on the religious leaders and say they are acting exactly like those religious leaders from so long ago. So Jesus ends up calling them hypocrites. Now you might hear hypocrite and say, okay, in what way does that actually make them hypocrites? That might need some clarity here. So, so here's two things that you need to know to bring some clarity to, to why Jesus calls them hypocrites. The first thing is this, that all of those hand-washing rules that the Pharisees seem so concerned about, according to the Old Testament law, this is from Exodus chapter 30, those hand-washing rules only applied to priests, not to all Israelites. That means that when the religious leaders expected people who weren't priests to wash their hands, 
and, and, and go about all of these things, that these were all extra man-made rules that didn't actually apply to all Israelites. And they appear to have been super concerned about upholding that. The second thing that you need to know that brings in the hypocrisy here is that even though the, the Pharisees were really concerned about the religious uh, ritual purity laws, right? They were not concerned about people that were dedicating their stuff to the temple, even if that stuff would have been used to take care of their aging parents. Because in their culture, when parents got old, you couldn't send them to a care facility. You couldn't send them to a nursing home. You just, you needed to have the resources to take care of them. So what did you do if you did not want to take care of your parents? Well, you tried to find a loophole in the law, and this is what they did. They would give their stuff to God, meaning they would they would say they were dedicating it to God, meaning they would dedicate it to the temple, and they would say, Mom and Dad, I have dedicated my resources to the temple. I just don't have the resources now to take care of you. You're going to have to find a way to take care of yourself. So they found a loophole in the law that would let them uh, be off the hook from taking care of their parents. And so their parents were left without anyone to take care of them. And the religious leaders were clearly not worried about this, even though this was a clear violation of, of the commandment to honor your father and mother. So are you seeing the incongruency or the hypocrisy here? The Pharisees are all about putting man-made hand-washing rules on Jewish people who the law does not even specifically apply to, but they're willing to overlook the clear sin where people are dishonoring and neglecting their parents as they give their property to the temple, which, by the way, probably would have benefited the religious leaders. So Jesus is revealing that they clearly care about emphasizing their made-up standards, but they don't care about the holy and abundant life that actually is an expression of obedience to God. There's a clear inconsistency in their way of life. So let's take a step back. Let's just take a moment, because that's a lot of stuff to sort through in the text, and let's think about, okay, where does this apply to us? How are we supposed to consider what Jesus' point is here? So is his point that we're supposed to rid ourselves of traditions? Is his point that we're supposed to throw off the chains of things from long ago and kind of move on to this new progressive way of thinking about things? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus' point is here. And here's three kind of reasons why, quickly. The first is Jesus has a very high value for God's law. Not only that he is part of the Trinity and the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is the one that inspired right, the writing of God's law, right? So, so not only because of that, but, but also because Jesus also himself participated and, and fully fulfilled the law, participating in the festivals uh, uh, that the law prescribed, the traditional expressions where they remember what God had done in the Old Testament for his people. So Jesus has a very high value for God's law. Second is some of Jesus' most devoted followers, like Paul, continued to value tradition in the early church. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. That word teachings there can also be translated as tradition. So Paul is telling the early church to hold fast to the traditions of the elders. So he's not saying get rid of them. He's saying hold fast to them, continue to hold to those. Third is Jesus himself called his people to, part to participate 
in certain traditions. We just don't often call them traditions. We call them baptism and the Lord's Supper. But when we break it down, these are truly traditions. So Jesus clearly is not abolish, abolishing tradition. So, so what is his point? And I think his point is this, and this is what I want you to take away this morning, that our traditions should never contradict, but always encourage worshipful obedience to God. Let me say that again. Our traditions should never contradict, but always encourage worshipful obedience to God. Jesus is not upset at the Pharisees and scribes for having traditions. He's upset at them for letting their traditions get in the way of them actually, genuinely, authentically following Yahweh. For Jesus, it is a matter of integrity and, and consistency. Uh, he's, he's wondering whether their traditions are like riverbanks that are kind of guiding them on their way towards God, or are their traditions acting more like a dam that is cutting off their flow, their, their pursuit of following the God of Israel. And Jesus seems to believe that what they're doing is inconsistent and it is cutting off what it means to truly follow God himself. So church, just, just hear me on this. According to Jesus, there should never be a contradiction between our profession of faith in Christ and the life that our traditions cause us to live. I want to say that again. According to Jesus, there should never be a contradiction between our profession of faith in Jesus and the life that our traditions cause us to live. Now, let's consider our traditions. We see what Jesus' point is here, but, but I think it's enormously important that we take the time to thoughtfully consider our traditions because, like I said, we all have them. And the last thing that we want is to be blind to them because if they are unhealthy traditions or traditions that are serving as kind of a dam, they're, they're inhibiting our relationship with Jesus and we never take the time to realize we have them, then they will continue to get in the way of our walk with Christ. And I do not want that for you. I don't think you want that for you. So let's kind of sort through three steps that we can use to process our traditions. The first thing is this identify your traditions. Identify your traditions. Make a list of, of common beliefs that you have, your common beliefs, your common values, the common practices, the common religious preferences that you have, and consider them and evaluate whether they are truly in line with a life submitted to Christ and evaluate whether they are essential traditions or maybe non-essential traditions. They're things that, that you need to hold to, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, or maybe there's things that you hold to, preferences that you have that you've held to for years that are good, but they may not be essential. And I'd encourage you to do this in the context of community. Do this with your friends. Maybe do this with Christ followers that are a little bit different than you. Because the, the reality is, is like we tend to think that, that we really have 20-20 vision. But the reality is, is we are often very blind. We, we have blind spots to, to our traditions and our preferences. And so when we do this in community, others can help us sort through and process. So identify your traditions. Second thing is evaluate your traditions. Evaluate your traditions. Once you kind of have this list of your traditions, then consider whether they are truly in line with a life submitted to King Jesus. The surefire way to do this is to make sure that your traditions are consistent with scripture. Some of your traditions will be directly prescribed 
by the text itself. Some of your traditions might run parallel to scripture. They might be things that the text does not directly prescribe, but nonetheless, they're consistent with what the scriptures talk about. What, what you want to be careful of, though, is those traditions that intersect with scripture, that, that run through scripture instead of running along with what scripture talks about. And if your traditions are drawing you away from a healthy and faithful walk with Christ, as the scriptures talk about, then ditch them. Get rid of them. They're not helpful for you. Even if sometimes they make us comfortable, they're not the best thing for us. They are not the best thing that God has for us. But if they are good traditions, if they're consistent with scripture, if they are honoring Jesus, if they're stirring your affections for him, then I want to encourage you to persist in godly traditions and let them lead you to a life of worshiping Jesus. Persist in those godly traditions. You see, this might be a little bit of a weird example, but traditions are kind of like vitamins and nutrients. Vitamins should contribute to your body's health, just like our traditions should contribute to the health of our Christian walk. But if, if we are taking something that's not actually helping us, maybe it's hurting us, maybe it's neutral, but if we're taking some pill or, or supplement that's, that's not doing what we want it to do, what it should be doing, then we should stop taking it. But that doesn't mean that we should devalue all vitamins and nutrients because some of them are good for us. Some of them are absolutely necessary and we need them for our health, just like some traditions should remain a staple of our walk with Jesus. So certainly do not get rid of all traditions because some of them might prove to be unhelpful. But as we wrap things up this morning and kind of transition back to a time of worship and response time, I want to be really clear in stating that all of our traditions, all of our routines, all of our life practices, they're simply not enough. And if you were to continue reading through chapter 7, Jesus makes something very, very clear here. It's that no matter what external practices we have, what really matters is what is going on inside of us. Because what we do and what we say and, and who we are is not simply an external matter. It's not something that simply happens out here. What Jesus understands brilliantly is that so much about who we are starts inside of us and then only secondarily expresses itself outwardly. So whether it's the traditions of these religious leaders or, or the ones that we have in our own lives, what, what we're seeing come out of us is always going to be a byproduct of something that has already started happening within us. And what we find in the scriptures is that it's not just our actions and traditions that are broken and need realignment, but it's our hearts, our inner selves that have postured themselves in a way that is rebellious against God. And there are not enough traditions and, and self-help books. There's not enough productivity systems or service organizations. There's not enough social justice causes or, or religious practices that can fix what is essentially broken inside of us. Some of those things might be very good, but they cannot fix what is broken, our own sinful inclination towards our maker and towards one another. There is something greater and far different that needs to happen first. And when we look at Christ's life and work, we see that he is exactly that remedy that we need. We see in, in Christ that God took on flesh and he lived the life that we could not. And he didn't do this so that we would enslave ourselves to traditions in order to make ourselves presentable to God. In fact, it's quite the opposite, where Jesus 
who is in the marketplaces making the unclean and rejected clean and new, he comes also to us, the ones who are thoroughly defiled by sin, and he dies for us, and he was raised to life so that we could be clean and acceptable to a holy God. And friends, as we trust in Christ's finished work for us, we not only are forgiven of our sin, but we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who gives us that change from the inside out that we so desperately need. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up as we come before the Lord's throne in song, which just let me say is a traditional expression of worship, a good one at that. Go figure. But friends, please remember that in Christ, we are not only freed from the need to do certain traditions in order to, to make our appearance better or for the sake of self-righteousness, we are not only freed from that, but we are also freed to do and observe godly traditions that fan into flames our love and devotion to Jesus. But it's always in response to what Jesus has already done for us and in consistency with the scriptures. We practice certain traditions as an expression of love for our Creator and what he has done in Jesus. As we move into uh, the remainder of our singing together, I just invite you to pray with me this prayer of confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things we have done and by the things we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.